Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Wise Woman Podcast. I'm ecstatic about today's guest. We have a true inspiration in my life, best-selling author and screenwriter Cheryl Strayed. This episode, we talk about the unediting and vulnerability that is needed to share the truth and be a life-changing storyteller. I am so excited about this episode. May it serve you. I know I am going to be thinking about Cheryl's wisdom for uh, the next long while. Thank you all so much for being here and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Talk Show with Aaron. I'm so excited to be with you with someone I deeply, deeply admire. Welcome, best-selling author, screenwriter, mother, Cheryl Strayed. Thank you for being here. Hello. It's fabulous to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm Yeah, I'm really, I'm so grateful to be with you and to have you on the show and the podcast. There are so many, when I prepared for this call, there were so many different questions I wanted to start with, but I'll first begin with the first time I was in your energy was this past March at South by Southwest, and you were there with Hulu presenting your show, Tiny hey. Beautiful Things. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that process? Yes, that's right. I went with our fabulous showrunner, Liz Tigelar, to talk about the, the adaptation of my book, Tiny Beautiful Things for Hulu. I was a big part of it. I was an executive producer on the show, or am an executive producer on the show, and I, I was also a writer on the show. And um, sadly, it's for that reason, I'm a member of the Writers Guild of America. So even though, Aaron, I would just, I want to talk to you all about the show, because there are so many interesting, amazing things to say about it. And it was such a, an educational, fun experience. And obviously, lots of brilliant people um, contributed to making the show what it is. But because we're on strike, um, and I, as a member of the union, am on strike where I'm going to refrain from, you know, public, you know, like doing publicity for the show on the podcast. But I really am excited to talk to you about my other work. And of course, I can talk to you about Tiny Beautiful Things, the book. Um, but yeah, that's when we were in the same room. That was, it feels like it, it was about two or three months ago, right? It feels like a long time ago, back when I was able to go on the road and publicize the show. Yeah, it does. It's It does seem like it was a long time ago, and I'm so sorry that's happening, and we're definitely going to talk about other creative endeavors that you're focusing on. So the 10th anniversary of the book, Tiny Beautiful Things, came out. What was your role, and did you have to update it or add a, a new forward? Yeah. So here's what happened is when I knew the, the show was you know coming along the pipeline, I was like, wait a minute. It is coming out right about the same time that it's just going to have passed its 10th anniversary. And of course, both Wild and Tiny Beautiful Things last year had their 10th anniversary. They, the, It's kind of strange to have published two books within a four-month span, but that's what happened. When Wild was published in March of 2012, um, it was followed very quickly by Tiny Beautiful Things, which was published in July of 2012. Um, the, my Dear Sugar book was just kind of this little this little book that my publisher thought, oh, we'll just sneak this in there um, behind Wild. And I can tell you more about that 
if if you're curious about it. But um, since since we're talking about the 10th anniversary edition, I'll, I'll tell you how that happened, is when I knew that the show was coming out, I, I got in touch with my publisher. And one of the interesting things about Tiny Beautiful Things to me is that it's this book that just over the 10 years that it was published just kept selling. It was like the little engine that could. It, it is a book that people read and then go buy a copy of it for their friend and very often for their friend or their or their partner or their sister or brother or mother or father um, at a time when that person is at a crossroads or has just achieved something like a graduation or has just had something hard happen to them, a breakup or the loss of a loved one. So many people over this past decade plus have said, okay, I bought the book and then I gave it to my friend who's you know, whose husband left her and it helped her, you know? So the book has really over, over its life been the kind of a book that people pass from hand to hand. And so I, I approached my publisher and said, listen, I feel like we should do a little update of the book, especially because I kept writing the column, not, not through the whole 10 years, but, um, in October of 2020, you know, a few months, you know, several months into the pandemic, I just had this idea of like, you know, I, people kept what what I found is that people kept writing to me. They kept write, sending me dear sugar letters, even though I wasn't writing the column. And I thought, you know, what better time than in, during in the midst of a pandemic to to restart the column? So I opened, you know, an account on Substack and made the announcement, I'm bringing Dear Sugar back. And so I've been doing it every month since then on my Substack newsletter. On the last day of every month, I write a Dear Sugar column. I'm now, the the most recent one the, that was published, it was number 31. So, you know, I every month I do another column. And so when I did approach my publisher about this idea of a 10th anniversary edition that would come out around the time of the TV show, I said, let me write, you know, a preface, let me add some more columns. I wanted to add like a ton more, but they were like, okay, we have to keep it under a certain number of pages. There was some, some printing situation that, that demanded that. But so I picked a half a dozen of, uh, of the columns that I'd written for my Substack newsletter and included them in this new edition. And th that came out uh, last fall. And it's, it's been wonderful to kind of breathe new life into this old book. Because of course, I mean, this is the thing I love about books and podcasts. It doesn't really matter when you read it or when you listen to it. Um, as long as, you know, it's always new to you if it's the first time you have it in your hands or you have it in your ears. So, um, you know, I love that a lot of people have come to the, the book through this new edition. My favorite way to work with tiny, beautiful things is I downloaded on my Kindle, the 10th anniversary edition. And it keeps me company in the middle of the night when a bout of insomnia or just feeling that inspiration and being awake in the middle of the night. It's the best thing to read without disturbing my husband. It's It really brings a lot of peace to people and it is timeless. And it comes us, it brings us into the conversation of the art of advice giving. Was this something that was always quite intuitive for you? Well, first I want to say I love, I love thinking that you're that you're listening to the book because of course I read I did I read the audio version and it's weird to me that like my voice must be so familiar to you huh <laughs> I yes absolutely yes I've listened to so many 
of your podcasts, of course. Yeah, no, and the podcast too. I've had the experience over and over again. Like I'll just be somewhere, you know, in the grocery store. I've had people walk from the other aisle and say, I could hear you talking. And I was like, I know that voice, you know, <laughs> you're Cheryl. So it's funny about that. But um, so you're and now I forgot your question. Oh, the art of giving advice. Was I always somebody who gave advice? It's interesting because I wouldn't say so. Like when I was asked to write the column, so I was asked by my friend Steve Almond at the at the time he was just an acquaintance of mine. Now he's a dear friend. But I was asked by Steve to to take over his writing of the column. And, you know, he was just doing it kind of intermittently and, and he and I knew each other's work and we had met at a conference, um, but we didn't know each other well, but it was through my work that he thought, okay, wait a minute, Cheryl, Cheryl could write this column. I don't want to do it anymore. Cheryl could do it. So he emailed me and said, do you want to take over this advice column on the rumpus? It doesn't pay anything. It's anonymous, you know, and there was really nothing to recommend it. He's like, it doesn't really have a following. I mean, and it was so funny. I laugh in retrospect because, you know, it really, it really, there was no good reason to do it except the one really good reason, which is that I felt something inside of me that said yes. And of course, as dear sugar, I'm always encouraging people to listen to that inner voice when something shouts, yes, do it. Right. And so it shouted yes to me. And even though I thought, wait a minute, I don't, I'm not qualified to give advice. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm, you know, I, I hadn't even taken a class in psychology. I hadn't even been through therapy. And so who am I, you know, to give advice? And what I realized is that what I was most interested in doing in the column and in my life, frankly, and certainly in my writing is to dig dig into the layers the, of what it means to be human, to really interrog interrogate um, those questions, those deep questions about who we are and why we do what we do and how we lose and how we love and how we triumph and how we suffer and how we feel jealousy and how we heal, like all of that stuff, how we find our wisdom. Those are all the questions that I have been the most interested in, um, in my life and in my career. and so. A long way of answering your question is in some ways, yes. I think at core, I have always been, if not an advice giver, a truth seeker. And I think that that is the core of giving advice, of good advice, where it's not, let me tell you what you should do, but let's look deeply at the truest answers. I love how you always relate back to your personal life because your life credibility is your PhD in psychology. And I think that's so important for a lot of people to hear because we live in an American culture where you need the title to go out and really just share the truth or like the true medicine on, on our hearts. And I wonder for you, because it started off completely anonymous, did that help you become more confident in sharing the highest truth that you saw at that moment? It didn't really. Um, and I understand why people might assume that it did because, you, because right, you know, you think, okay, when I'm anonymous, I'm totally free to say whatever I want to say, say, and there will be no consequences. And I knew from the beginning that my anonymity was an experiment. It was a temporary state of being. I wanted to see what it felt like 
Well, first of all, I just did it because that's what Steve was doing. He, he was anonymous. But then I was like, on a deeper level, it's kind of fun, kind of interesting. But I wrote every word of the column as if my name were at the top of it, because I knew that someday it would be. I knew that it didn't feel right to me to, to say, okay, I'm anonymous and you'll never know who I am. And you're right. You know, I mean, one of the things that I, there are so many layers of things that I found to be quite interesting about the meeting of those two things that you just mentioned, anonymity and deep storytelling about my own life. Um, because what was interesting is a couple of years, you know, I, I, I revealed my identity um, about two years after, almost to the day, two years after I started writing the column. And by then I had, I had told so many stories about my life. I had talked about my past. I had told stories about my mother's death. I had told stories about my father's abuse and abandonment. I had told stories about my grandfather sexually abusing me. I had told stories about being a mother and my two children. I had told stories about my path as a writer. I told so many stories, you know, about my first marriage and my divorce, like honestly. And what was so funny to me is when I revealed my identity on Valentine's Day 2012, the whole thing was like, well, who is sugar? Who is sugar? And I'm like, people, you know me. You know me. The only thing you don't know about me really is my name. And yet, so then we say, okay, I'm anonymous. But think about all the people, you know their names and you know absolutely nothing about them. And this is, this, you know, this was the more ex interesting experiment to me when it came to anonymity was the ways in which story, like the way we use story to console each other, to comfort each other, to heal each other. The, the whole point of my using my life to give advice or to help illuminate people's questions, if you will, um, it wasn't, oh my gosh, you know, look at me because I've had a more interest in life than anyone. I, I, I don't believe that at all. What I was trying to say is we find great consolation, great healing, great illumination, great wisdom in our ability to tell truthfully the stories about ourselves, the painful ones, the beautiful ones the ones in which we did all the right things and the ones that we did all the wrong things. Those are all the kinds of stories I tell in the Dear Sugar column. And, you know, they're, they're in so many of the columns, not every single one, but most of them, like you said, have a story from my life. And so, you know, I was really trying to lean into actually revelation rather than anonymity. And there's so much God in that. There's so much connection to a higher power. And when we're talking truth, it's, it's, the holiest conversation that there really is. And I wept with you along the way. Mm. And I think you're one of the greatest authors that really can pull the soul of the reader to feel exactly how you're feeling. And that's that's also truly one of your greatest gifts. Thank you. In, of course. In writing all of your incredible books, was it also a healing journey for you? Yeah. And that's such a, I love that question because it's one that reflects my own growth and evolution. My first book, Torch, was published in 2006, in February 2006. And it's a novel. Um, so it's fiction and, and it's more fictional than people think because it does have, you know, there are some plot lines that are very much from my life. There is, it's, it's a novel about a family in Northern Minnesota who live in a rural environment, very much like the rural environment where I grew up. And the mother dies young of cancer, pretty much exactly like my own mother died of cancer. 
But what was interesting is like, so I took that autobiographical situation and and then created fictional characters, fiction, characters who were legitimately fictional um, and, and wrote it, a novel essentially that spans about a year of a family's, um, this family during the time of great loss and grief. And um, I remember at the time, my first novel, my first time like going on book tour and really talking to press about my writing. And this question was asked a lot. Was it cathartic? Was it healing? Was it, you know, and I, I really felt the need to say, no, I'm an artist. My intentions are artistic. And the reason that I had to say that is because, you know, so often, especially women writers, whenever we write about emotional things, whenever we write about anything that might be interpreted as autobiographical, we're kind of, you know, our, our, our sort of work as like serious writers is diminished, right? It's like, oh, she was just healing. It was just a cathartic journey, which is kind of akin to like, um, you know, she published her journals. And so I felt almost like defensive about it. And I would say catharsis is over here and art is over here and I am an artist, right? And then I grew older. I grew more confident in myself as a writer and in the very serious work I was doing. And by the time I finished Wild, I started to feel really comfortable in saying, you know what? It's both. And those things are not, you know, opposite. Um, I don't think there is an artist out there of any form, a dancer, a sculptor, a painter, a musician, a writer, a filmmaker, a photographer, and on and on and on, all the kinds of artists there are. I don't think there is an artist who who gives their whole essence and spirit to something the same way that that I have given my essence and spirit to all my work, who doesn't feel healed by it, who doesn't go through some kind of cathar cathartic process, an awakening, a realization, a transformation. I think art making is one of the most um, healing things we could possibly do. And so, yeah, those things sit by side by side. And it's interesting for years, Aaron, I, you know, as, as sugar, I'd be like, I've never been through therapy. And it, it's still true. Like I've, I've done a lot of therapy the last few years with like my kids and different, you know, family situations. But um, what I realized, and, and this isn't to say I'll never go through an official therapeutic process individually with a therapist. I might do that at some point, but writing to me is very therapeutic because it in some ways replicates that process that, you know, I'm always trying to go to that layer beneath. And then the layer beneath, I'm always asking those questions. Well, why did I think that? Or why did mm -hmm. I feel that? Or why did my, you know, I think people don't understand too. Like in fiction, it's the same thing. You know, it might not be me, but this character I've created, I have to understand um, their psychology in order for them to seem real to you on the page. And so it ends up being incredibly uh, therapeutic. That's very Freudian, the what lies beneath the surface, making the unconscious conscious and diving layers and layers deeper through writing. Mm -hmm. Wild was a huge motivator, inspiration in my life. It's what inspired my own journey to book one-way tickets and live in Israel and India and across Asia and Europe. Woohoo! I know, right? I'm so, uh, I'm so thrilled. I, that's my favorite thing when people say, that, that, you know, wild inspired them to do something. That's so cool. And now that I fit, I submitted it on, on a couple of days ago to my publisher, the final manuscript. And as I wrote the book, which is stories and then pra practical advice, next steps, if you will, 
Eastern ritual and Western psychology, I would tell these stories and I would think to myself, I can't believe that happened to me. I can't believe that happened, right? This Maybe this happened a decade ago, but I can't believe this happened to a younger version of self. Did you have moments like that where you were baffled that this was even your storyline? Oh, for sure. And and still, I mean, I'm working on, there's this, there's been this essay I've been kind of working on off and on for literally like 10 years now. And I was thinking this morning about finishing it. And the thing I was thinking about is people are not going to believe that this is true. And I'm like, literally like thinking like, okay, well, they can verify it this way and that way. Because yes, I mean, the, the, the beautiful thing about life and, and memoirists say this to each other all the time that like, um, truth is stranger than fiction. You know, there are things that really happen in real life that you're like, you know, sometimes things are wild or magical or, you know, strange coincidences, or how could that possibly have happened? But it did, you know, and that's always the challenge, you know, it's like to be like, no, no, it really did. It really did. This was, you know, um, this was the moment um, that I happened to be there for. And so much of, you know, I mean, I think all of our lives are full of that kind of magic. It's just that when you're writing about it, it's somehow heightened and it feels like unreal. And I want to, I just want to add, I'm so deeply sorry for the passing of your mother. I, I feel like that's so top of mind just from watching the show and, and being so invested in your storyline, especially in, in Wild and in Tiny Beautiful Things and all your other great work. Thank you. I, I love the chapter, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, where you ate her ashes. I get mm. it's so primal and honest. I did the same thing with my dog's ashes, which maybe I shouldn't say out loud, but it's it, it's like you just want them. You love somebody so much, you want you want them inside you. Yeah. I mean, and I think the most interesting thing to me is that you saying maybe I shouldn't say that out loud. Um because it's like it, that tells its own story, right? And when I wrote that line in Wild, I, I mean, I remember writing that line because the thing I thought as soon as I, I mean, I wrote the line and I literally like jumped up from my computer as if it had like electrocuted me. And my thought was, I can't say that. I can't keep that line in the book. And um, that is really because it's true. It's really true. And it's a little bit taboo. And we're not, it, what, what, what that tells me that you just said that and that I thought that when I wrote that line is that we're not really allowed to tell the truth about loss and grief in our culture, the real truth. And so, of course, whenever I write a line like that, where I feel like, oh, I have gone a little too far, I, I always think, okay, I'll take that out before it's published. And then I think, and then I come down from that tree and think, no, no, those are the lines we need to leave in. Um, that's what we come to art for is those, the, the, the lines that are actually the truest thing. And so, you know, keep telling those truths, Aaron, keep saying the story that you, the, the, the sentence that you say, I shouldn't have probably said that. Right. Because that's, that's what we're here for. That's what we're here to do. And it almost always brings good things to our lives when we do. I mean, so many people have written to me about that sentence because they've said, I did that too. I thought I was the only one. And interestingly, I, you know, we're not talking about the show, but, um, you know, without going too far into it, like, uh, you know, a couple of us really wanted that in the show and it, uh, that was a very big, um, 
point of contention um, because most people didn't want that in the show, that swelling of the ashes, because it was, quote, too much. And I, you know, I, it is what I love about art is sometimes it is too much. It's the things that are too much that rattle us. And um, and I think that we get to always make choices, right? Or do we want to do we want to push things a little further? Or do we want to stay over here on the safe side? And I, for one, have always wanted to go a bit further. This is one of the most topical conversations that I keep having within my community, and it's that we don't know what to do with rage. We don't know what to do with grief. I've learned that one of the most taxing things you can do to a woman who is experiencing a heightened emotional state is to hand her a piece of Kleenex, right? It's that time to really explore, explode, allow yeah. the fullest expression of self. When it comes to an unediting or for, for people who are listening and they really want to tap into like their fullest expression of self, what, what would you share? What is some steps they can take? Well, I think that, you know, practicing vulnerability um, daily is is a wonderful way of like learning, you know, like it allows us to, to, to constantly engage with the truth of our emotions. And, you know, when we when we do get really enraged or have that kind of like breakdown experience, um, it's often because we've been like holding it back, holding it back, holding it back, unexpressed um, emotion, desire, sorrow, anger, sense of betrayal, whatever, all of that mix of um, emotions that sometimes contributes to those big uh, breaking open points. You know, I think that the best way to, to really um, like be emotionally healthy is to, is to engage daily with like that sense of like, what am I holding back? What am I allowing myself not to feel? What sentence if I'm, if, am I saying, you know, I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't say this. Um, it's really helpful to say it, even if you just say it to yourself, you know, um, for years I kept a journal and what a wonderful practice that was. What a wonderful way to just say onto the page, like even to say onto the page, um, what your truth and reality is, is so healing. And so like it, it contributes so much to our mental health because it's not all just in here. Right. And I, the other thing I would say is, you know, to not be afraid of emotion, other people's or our own. It's okay. Like you said, you know, I understand that gesture of handing somebody a Kleenex when they're, when they're crying, that's a gesture of compassion and kindness and consideration, but it also is saying, okay, like literally put a tamp in this now, like, mm -hmm. instead of saying, let's just like, it's okay. You know, what do people say when they start to cry? Um, if I started to cry right now with you, my instinct would be to say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You go, oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You know, that we apologize for certain emotions and, you know, we're allowed to feel some emotions freely and others not, not freely at all. And of course, those emotions that we instinctually say apologize for because we feel ashamed. We feel like we should have a sort of a composure that is actually, you know, um, ridiculous because, so, so what I was just going to say is like, I think that as often as possible, not only, you know, take up space with your own emotions, allowing yourself to cry without apology, but also granting it, you know, being comfortable with other people's emotions for a long time, when it comes to the ways that we've treated people who are mourning, um, the idea was don't 
mention it because you'll upset the person. You know, like you just said to me, I'm so sorry you lost your mom. My mom died a long time ago. And it was very kind of you to say that, to bring her life into this space. I'm really touched by that. And I also think it's brave because a lot of times people want, you know, they want to avoid bringing up the, the, the dead person because like, oh, you'll upset the, per, you know, the, the, the person who's grieving that person. And in fact, by not bringing them up, what you do is you, 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 you just simply silence and block off that emotion. You unconsciously communicate that there shouldn't be emotion, right? And so, you know, I think reversing the ways that we even talk to people who have lost someone um, would do so much to contribute to our emotional wellness. I've given you a long meandering answer, but I hope that was, it addressed like different tentacles. I mean, you asked such a great big question. I'm just answering you all over the map. I, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And I, yeah, I feel so, I feel so connected to you and your story. And I even shared, and I, I know we're not talking so much about the show, but I was very early in my pregnancy and I really, I had the, the strong emotions that are in the show. And of course, reading tiny, beautiful things and wild, I think it's, it's a big part of why I feel connected to you or, or why I understand you or why I hear you. And I think I'm so close with my mom and I thank God every day for that relationship. And, and I can really feel it through your lens. So of course, and the great rabbis say there's two times when somebody dies, the actual day they expire in this physical realm. And then the day that people stop talking about them. Mm. So we have to keep the memory alive and we have to you have to say the thing that's in the room, right? I've known of you for deck for so long, for 15 plus years. Yeah. And uh, yeah, of course it has to be, your mother has to be in the room. Yeah. It's interesting. It's like, right. If you know, if you know my work, like it, it's just like, I'm so, my mother is everywhere in it, isn't she? And it's, it's really interesting, Aaron, because in those years, right after she died, when I was in my deep grief, there was in my rage, in my sorrow and rage, I remember very specifically, I went one time like for like one or two sessions with a counselor because everyone was like, oh, go see a therapist. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, fuck, fuck therapists, you know, because I and what I said is like they can't give me what I want because like the reason I'm sad is my mom is dead. Like I want my mom back. Like I didn't want the second best thing. And which was, you know, basically a, a way to figure out how to accept that she was never, that I would never have her back. I didn't want that thing because wanting that thing was accepting that I would never get the first thing, right? I know it, none of this is logical, but it's like a, it's like my emotional reality. And so much of what I learned, I would say the most important thing I learned um, on my hike, the hike that I wrote about in Wild on the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, was that that I that that not only could I accept my mother's death, that I had, that here I was walking all this distance, carrying this enormous burden, and not doing everything perfectly, but I was doing it, and I realized I could carry her, and that I would carry her, that my loss wasn't something that was going to be like I'm really sad now, and then there will be a day where I won't be sad, and it'll be okay that she's dead. That's not, that wasn't the journey. The journey was um, my grief will change over time. 
And I will, it will always be with me and it will feel different on different days. And the burden will be lighter on some days and heavier on others. But that like the task was that I did have to, you know, accept the second best thing is that I would carry my mother with me. Well, what happened is when I accepted that, when I realized, okay, here was this mother I would carry for all of my life. Then it's like, what do I do with her? What do I do with the love she gave me? What do I do with the beauty that she was? What do I do with the love I have for her? And the answer to that, I didn't totally know the answer to that by the time I finished my hike, but I started to get an idea. But, you know, the answer to that was I, I, you know, that I, that I carry her with my life, that I put her into the most important and powerful and meaningful and beautiful things in my life, my writing and the love I have for my children. And there she is in so many of my sentences. And what's so cool to me, I mean, I think the coolest thing ever in my writing is that people read my books and feel like they know my mom. People from all over the world have walked up to me and said my mother's name, Bobby, to me. And I just think, how could this even be? So I didn't get her back and I never will. But in some ways, I gave, I got her back through my writing because I shared her story with the world. And um, that has been absolutely powerful medicine indeed. And then of course, with my kids, the way I love them is the way she loved me. Um, and there's something extremely nurturing and beautiful about that as well. I'm so happy to firsthand witness and, and hear all of your wisdom. Do you think, Thank you. do you think you would ever do it again? The hike? Oh, I would with my with my niece. <laughs> yes, um, I love to hike. Still, I love to hike. Still, I know it's it's. I, I yeah, I mean, absolutely. I've always intended to, you know, um, hike. The what I really wanted when my kids were younger is I hoped that we would hike it all together as a family, and then just like time turned on and, you know, here we are, but my kids now, my son's about to graduate high school, literally tomorrow wow. and my daughter's finishing her junior year. So, I mean, it's it just life gets full and hard, but you know, maybe there'll be this sweet spot um, sometime in the near future where um, the four of us could go hike it together before my husband and I get to age. Though there are lots of really old people who hike the trail too. So I'll be one of those fit 77 year olds out there on the Pacific Crest. Trail. Amazing. I think that's incredible. And maybe there's another book there as well. Yes. Cheryl, what's it like being like, you're so well known and successful and inspiring and paving the path for all of us. And now you're also in this very elite Hollywood scene. What, <laughs> what is that? What's that like? Gosh, it's such a big question. It's, it's thrilling and astonishing. You know what? One thing I, I'm often asked for advice, writing advice, career advice, like how did, you know, how did you get here, here and here and here? And, you know, what's always impossible to answer about that question is I think that people think that there's, um, you know, some like secret, like, door through which you must pass to get, you know, to this place. And what I can tell you, and I've said this over and over again in my advice as sugar, is that what I really did in a very deep way is honor the calling within me to be a writer. 
And I really did take a lot of risks. Um, completely was absolutely financially, you know, well, just to put it this way, broke, flat broke, um, really uh, until Wild was published in my early 40s. You know, I, I really kept throwing myself in the direction always of my writing. And it wasn't about trying to meet the right people. It was trying to get the right sentences on the page or the screen. It was really apprenticing myself to the craft in a very deep way. And that is the thing that led me then, you know, um, I guess to this place, you know, there wasn't some sort of magic thing that happened that like Reese Witherspoon picked up wild and decided to option it for a film. You know, she decided to option it for a film because she read the book and she felt it in her heart the way you did, you know? And she said, I want to make this, I want to tell this story on the screen. And I think that that to me has been, I would, I would say the most encouraging, um, you know, thing about this whole trajectory I've been on is really so much like pretty much everything good that's happened has happened to be, it, it began with the work, you know, it began with me alone in a room writing. I, you know, when I said yes to the Dear Sugar column, I didn't know that it would grow any followers. I didn't know anyone would read it. I didn't know it would become a book. I wasn't paid to do it even. I did it because I felt called to do it. Um, I I felt like it was a cool format in which I could explore another sort of avenue of writing. And then he, it led to this place. And so I always try to return to that, that like, you know, I think of the success in Hollywood and getting to go to the Oscars and the Golden Globes, and like all that super, super fun, Oprah, like all of that stuff. But that's all like out here. But where, you know, I always return is in here. And I am un I'm still that same person day by day who sits in front of my computer and says, ah, you know, I can't do this. I, I I can't think of the way to begin to tell this story or the way to end this story or the way to, you know, put all these pieces together. I'm still a very kind of humble and scared and anxious and vulnerable writer, you know, day by day. And, but it's keeping faith with that. It's keeping faith with the idea that I'm wrong, that I can't do it. That has brought me to this place, I would say. Holding, holding everything that you're saying. And I'm sure there's some, especially when it comes to children, it, like there's some storylines that maybe like, I, I sometimes feel like as a writer that I can't write about all the things because I'm still in it a little bit or because it's too personal for other people in my life. Is, is, is that a theme for you? It used to not be. Um, yeah. but now it is, I mean, to some degree it was, don't, don't get me wrong. Like I always, my joke is, um, you know, the, the most unfortunate thing about writing memoir is that other people exist um, because, <laughs> you know, it's impossible to not write about other people. Right. And yet it feels sometimes wrong to do. I don't like to hurt people's feelings. I don't like to violate people's privacy. And so it's sometimes challenging. But it, up until pretty recently, I did have quite a lot of free, you know, not entirely, but like, for example, you know, I could write whatever I wanted to write about my mom because she's dead. 
And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I can't say everything about my mom because her feelings will be hurt. I was estranged from my dad. He's dead now too. But, you know, I didn't have like parents I had to really protect. Um, my siblings, I've, I did not write about them very much because I, I do want to protect their privacy. Um, so there, I was a little inhibited there, but then of course I have two teenagers now and there are big stories you know, obviously they're like really big people in my life and they're, you know, I haven't written a lot about them or a lot, you know, at least in very much detail about my mothering life and mothering teenagers. And it's for that exact reason. It's just like, well, I don't want to invade their privacy. It feels really, um, you know, like a little bit off limits, which, which is hard for me as a writer who is somebody who's very transparent and vulnerable, but vulnerable about my life. So, you know, my solution for now is like, I'm avoiding that. I'm, I'm just writing about other times of my life when I do personal writing. And then of course I do sometimes when I write about my kids, I ask their permission. I ask them what they think. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, that, that my advice for people about that is, you know, it's not always the right time. Like if your mother's still alive and you have a big story to tell her about it, a big story to tell her about her, you know, it's not, it's not terrible to wait until she passes. Like, and when you feel like you're freer now, other times you can say, you know, you can discuss the content with the person and they'll be okay with it. Like there are all these different decisions you can make about when to write about other people. Mm, I needed to hear that. Yeah. That, that's amazing. What are your writing rituals? You know, I, I lately, I've sort of gotten away from rituals and gotten, I'm just, uh, and and I don't know that I ever really had ritual rituals per se. I really tend to be a pretty practical um, person when it comes to my writing practice, which is get to work. <laughs> and I, I think I really had to adopt that kind of approach you know, long ago, back in my twenties, when I was waiting tables and, and on my days off or, you know, like or the, during the day before I went and worked my waitressing and shift, like is when I would work. And then I had little kids and it was like, when they're napping is when I had to work. And then now that I have a really busy life, it's like, okay, these are the three hours I have. I've got to get to work. And to attach that, that practice of writing to a ritual to me didn't serve me. It felt like it felt a little something like put on. Whereas if I can just say like, this is my work, this is what I need to do today and just get to it. Um, I find that that's, that works better for me. Cheryl, thank you so much. Assuming that this episode goes viral and everyone around the world hears it, which I really think is it, it's going to be shared many times. What is some advice you would want to share general advice you would want to share with listeners? Mm, general advice. Well, you know, I, one thing that I return to so often as sugar in my advice, I feel like this is really kind of a core truth is that, you know, trust your instincts, trust that voice within you. And it's okay to want what you want. It's okay to do what you want to do, to say what you want to say, to feel how you feel. And you don't need permission to, to do or say or feel or think those things that, you know, cultivating on a daily, in a daily way, um, essentially 
listening to your, you know, the, the practice of listening to yourself, trusting yourself, believing yourself, honoring yourself is in the end going to contribute so much to your well-being. There's so many of us who are afraid to give ourselves permission to be who we most truly are and to do what we most truly want to do. Um, and I see that over and over again in all these different forms, and it's really harmful. So there is your permission slip, everyone. Cheryl Strayed told you to believe in yourself, to go for it. How can everybody find you? You can find me at CherylStrayed.com and also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. I'm just Cheryl Strayed. And I, of course, have my Substack newsletter. It's, there's a free newsletter that goes out intermittently. And then you could subscribe to the Dear Sugar letter if you want. Both of those are on Substack. The Dear Sugar letter goes out once a month. But you can find links to all that on my website at CherylStrayed.com. And I will add all of that into the show notes. Cheryl, I'm so inspired by you. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom on Talk Show with Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. It was just really a delight to be here talking to you.